You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. You'd like to open your Bibles to John chapter 6. Last week we were looking at the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 with only a small handful of loaves of bread and a couple of fish. And I mentioned there that uh, then that there were some people, some commentators and some so-called Bible scholars, some that I actually enjoy reading, who don't believe it was a miracle. Um, one particular commentator that I normally enjoy tries to explain it away by suggesting that the crowd already actually had plenty of food with them, but they were too selfish to share it. That is, until they saw this poor young boy sharing his meagre rations, the only food he had for the day. And that inspired them to generosity. So they shared their own, with the result that there were 12 basketfuls of leftovers. Given the general selfishness of humanity, that may just qualify as a miracle in itself. But if that's how it happened, why would that inspire the crowd to try to install Jesus as king? After all, it was the boy who showed such inspirational leadership. Why not install him as king? All Jesus did then was to help his disciples to hand the food out. Later in the same chapter, which and uh, we'll get to it in a couple of weeks' time, Jesus explains what the whole episode means from a spiritual point. And he begins by saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Are we to believe, if the sceptics are correct, that Jesus is saying, truly, truly, you are seeking me because you had the foresight to bring more than enough food with you? just doesn't make sense. Instead of taking the text at face value, some feel the need to search for natural explanations for the events. Funny how we moderns like to think that we have better insight into 2,000-year-old events than the actual eyewitnesses had. But I guess that's the arrogance of modern man. The next miracle received similar treatment from the same commentator and from plenty of others too. Again, in spite of the biblical evidence to the contrary. So if you'd like to join me in reading from John 6 verse 16 onwards. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat and started across the sea of Capernaum to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, a bit of a geography lesson might help us to get our bearings here. These events, the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water, took place around the very northern end of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is a very large lake. It's about a quarter of the size of our western port bay, if that helps you to picture it. It sits at the northern end of modern-day Israel, 200 metres below sea level, and it's fed by the Jordan River from the north. Modern-day Syria is to the east, 
and Lebanon is not too far to the northwest. It's surrounded by hilly and even mountainous terrain. And wild storms are pretty common here on this lake because cold winds rush down the mountains to the west in the evening, making the lake a treacherous place to be at night. And this background may not seem particularly relevant at first, but these little hints in the text about Jesus going up a mountain or about a storm on the lake or even the green grass around the time of Passover that we read about last week reveal to us that these witnesses had local knowledge. It helps to corroborate the stories we read in the Gospels. And these little hints and comments should help us to have confidence that the rest of the text is true and accurate as well. But let's be honest, walking on water is pretty hard to believe. Some of us have enough trouble walking on land without falling down. To walk on water without sinking, even in perfect conditions, beggars belief. So much so that some Bible scholars and commentators tie themselves in knots trying to explain it away. We might as well dispense with the most popular explanation of what these sceptics believe is really happening here. The argument generally goes that when John said they saw Jesus walking on the sea, that he used a Greek word which can also mean they saw Jesus walking by the sea. That apparently is a legitimate translation of that particular word. So if it's correct, it means Jesus wasn't walking on water at all. He was merely walking along the shoreline when they saw him. Problem is, of course, that that ignores most of the evidence. And let's face it, the only evidence we actually have are the reports from the eyewitnesses. And it leaves too many questions unanswered as well. Questions like, Why were these seasoned fishermen and sailors, and most of the occupants of the boat were seasoned fishermen, why were they so terrified? They've experienced plenty of storms before as they've gone about their business. They know how to handle a boat in a storm. If they saw Jesus walking along the shoreline, why would that be so terrifying? Wouldn't the sight of Jesus so near to them be soothing rather than frightening? John tells us that they saw Jesus coming near the boat. Note who was approaching who. It doesn't say that the boat was coming near Jesus, as you might expect if Jesus was on the shoreline. These experienced fishermen know the difference between the sound of waves breaking in the open water and waves crashing on the shoreline. You mean to tell me that they knew they were almost at the shoreline and that that terrified them? Or if the boat was so close to the shore that they could hear Jesus speak to them, why would you imagine they were still so afraid? Not only that, they must have been virtually beached on the shoreline for Jesus to get in the boat with them. They should have been relaxing, not shaking with fear. And of course, the sceptics ignore another miracle in this story. Immediately, the boat was at the land to which they were going. I'm sure some sceptics use this to support their contention that Jesus was on dry land the whole time. But again, why would the disciples be so frightened? And why would Jesus bother getting in the boat only to get out again immediately? Both 
Matthew and Mark in their Gospels shed a bit more light on this story. Matthew tells us that the boat was already some distance from land. And Mark explains that the boat was in the middle of the sea. Those Gospels alone shred the arguments of the sceptics. Now, the arguments of the sceptics have holes large enough to, to drive a Mack truck through. So why can't they just be honest? If they don't want to believe what it says, just say so. It's their prerogative. No one's forcing them to believe it. And I've got to say, not only do I find their attempts to explain it away annoying, I actually find myself resentful that these so-called Bible scholars don't believe the text but refuse to be honest about it. Don't earn your living and build your reputation from the Bible or trying to explain why it's not true. Just be honest. Come out and say the fact of the matter is, I don't believe the Bible is true. Therefore, as a matter of personal integrity, I'll stop taking your hard-earned cash and I'll go find an honest job as a bricklayer or a car mechanic or an office clerk. That I could respect. You don't believe the Bible? That's your choice. But don't make a living from people by pretending to be an expert about things you don't really believe in. If that's what you want to do, become the proverbial used car salesman. But stop deceitfully calling yourself a Bible scholar. Instead, we will choose to believe what the Bible says, won't we? For the Bible is consistent. The Bible is consistent even when it's relating things that are outside our experience. And we will choose to believe it because the author has proven himself reliable. He's proven himself reliable in centuries past and he's proves, proven himself reliable in our own lives. But of course, my railing against these so-called Bible scholars won't make much difference. They'll continue to be leeches sucking the spiritual life out of people. If you listen carefully, you might be able to hear the serpent in the garden whispering, did God really say? But God's quite capable of making sure his message survives and making sure his message gets through, even in the face of sceptics and critics. He's kept it alive and relevant for thousands of years now. It will remain so for the rest of time. So let's have a look at what our text really says. Let's see if we can find out what God wants to tell us through this story. Again, we find just like last week in the feeding of the 5,000 that John is economical with his words. I suspect that because he is writing decades probably after the other gospel writers that he assumes his readers are familiar with the other gospels. So he only hits on the main point, sometimes adding a little snippet of information that they miss and sometimes ignoring some of the things that they tell us. Verse 16, it tells us when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea and they got in a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. It's been a long and exhausting day for Jesus and for the disciples. They've had a crowd of 
maybe as many as 20,000 people clamoring after Jesus for miracles and healings. And Jesus has been compatient and compassionate with them, healing their diseases and teaching them about the kingdom of God. And late in the afternoon, knowing that they haven't eaten all day, he feeds all 20,000 of them with only five small loaves and two little fish. He then dismisses the crowd and sends them all home while he goes up a mountain to rest, to pray and to commune with his father. He tells his disciples to get into the boat and head back across the lake. He'll catch up with them later. Presumably, they waited for a while before setting off. And John tells us they started across the sea to a Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. But my guess is they probably waited around for a little while and then decided to set out. Now, it's been a tough and a hectic day. They've had a good 12 hours or more on their feet, feeding the 5,000 men, 20,000 potentially people, and now they have to row back across the lake in the dark. It's about to be a longer night. So they set out rowing back towards Capernaum, and the wind starts howling off the mountains to the west, churning up the sea. It's hard going. Mark tells us that it's well into the night and they're in the middle of the sea, not by the coastline, you'll notice. They're straining at the oars, battered by the waves. Now, most of these guys, as I said, are experienced fishermen. They've encountered conditions like these plenty of times in the past as they ply their trade. But this is exceptionally hard going. You can't relax in those conditions. You have to keep the bow of the boat pointed directly into the waves. If you get side on, the waves will swamp you. They'll sink your boat and you'll probably drown. So you don't dare let up. When they'd rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened. They continued to struggle at the oars, making slow progress. They've been at it all night with no sign of the storm letting up. In nine hours or thereabouts, they've covered three or four miles. Now, a good rower in ideal conditions could cover that distance in 20 or 30 minutes. So it's been a tough slog at the end of an exhausting day. And what do they see through the spray of the crashing waves? Someone walking towards them on the water. Are they hallucinating from exhaustion and lack of sleep? But it can't be, for they all saw this person coming, according to Mark's gospel. Maybe it's a ghost. Whatever or whoever it is, they're terrified. In all their years of fishing this lake, they've never seen anything like this. John tells us that Jesus was coming near the boat. Mark expands on that to tell us that it looked like he was going to walk past them. Walk past them. What a strange comment. I wonder why Jesus would walk past them and not to them. Maybe we'll come back to that thought a little later on. Whatever the explanation, it's pretty clear that Jesus is unperturbed by the storm. Is the water smooth just in front of him while he's walking? while it churns all around? Or are the waves parting like the Red Sea to allow him to walk through as if he was on dry ground? Whatever the case, 
Jesus is ignoring the law of gravity that keeps the rest of us anchored to this earth. The law of gravity that would anchor us to the bottom of that sea if we tried to stunt like that. Actually, Peter did try a stunt like that. Matthew adds to his account of this same event that they cry out in fear and Jesus announces himself to them. And Peter wants proof, so he says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. So Peter steps out of the boat and begins to defy gravity too. For a little while. But the instant he takes his eyes off Jesus and looks instead to his surroundings and his circumstances, he begins to sink. The law of gravity overtakes the level of his faith. Now, I don't need to labour that point. I'm sure you can see for yourself how that might apply to your life and your circumstances. But just on a side note, how ridiculous would the story of Peter walking on the water be if the sceptics were right? Peter stepped out of the boat onto dry land and began sinking on the beach. If walking on the water isn't a miracle, then sinking on dry land must be. You can't have it both ways. But getting back to our story, Jesus said to him, said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Jesus isn't doing this to frighten them. He's doing it to teach them something and to teach us something too. The most obvious lessons are that we, um, we need not fear Jesus and we need not fear the storm when Jesus is near us. Let's quickly recap the story to see what other lessons we can learn from it. It's been a long, busy and exhausting day. Jesus dismisses the crowd somewhere around dusk and sends his disciples off in the boat to the other side of the lake because it's been a long day for them too. He remains behind, going up the mountain, presumably to pray and talk to his father. That's what he usually does when he goes up mountains alone. The disciples have barely started rowing when a violent storm whips up on the lake, so powerful that these seasoned fishermen are frightened. Do you think Jesus knew the storm was coming? Of course he did. He knows the secrets of the human heart. He knows the end from the beginning. He knew perfectly well what was coming. And you could argue that, as God, Jesus is responsible for the storm. Not only do the wind and waves have no power over him, they are in fact subject to him, as we'll see later in the story. And yet he sends his unsuspecting disciples straight into the teeth of that storm, a storm which could have taken their lives. Does he not care what happens to them? There's a lesson for us in that, a lesson about trusting him in the teeth of the strongest storms of confusion, a lesson about confidence and security and even contentment in the face of the greatest onslaught of opposition. A lesson that Jesus will send us into circumstances that we didn't anticipate and we don't want to be in, but he sends us anyway. The lesson continues. As distant as he may seem at those times, 
he's never far from us. Lest we think he has turned his back on us and is unaware of what we are going through, Mark's gospel reminds us that well into the night when the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on land, he saw them straining at the oars. His eye, his protective eye, is always on his people. Nothing escapes his notice and nothing, not even the wildest storms, can separate us from his love and care. You're all familiar with the passage in Romans, the end of Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But what are we to do when we're engulfed in the darkness and the storm and there's no sign of rescue on the horizon? Continue to row. Continue to row. Keep at it. Don't give up on the task at hand. It will grow your faith. It will build spiritual muscle. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the, in the Lord your labour, your rowing, is not in vain. Another lesson. He will come. At just the right time. He is never early. He is never late. Those who are in Christ are always safe. Storms don't trouble the Lord. He walked through the waves like they didn't exist. Like he was walking on dry land. The storms don't have to disturb us either. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that his followers will escape injury or poverty or persecution or even death. The disciples were in the boat in the boat were in real danger, and they were in great danger amidst the violent storm. They could have been swamped and they could have drowned. But it does mean that nothing can happen to them that is outside the control of their heavenly Father, that is outside the control of Jesus Christ. Not a single Christian will die before their time. I might repeat that. Not a single Christian, not you, not I, will die before their time. You are invincible right up until the time when the Lord decides you have fulfilled your purpose in your generation, just like he said about King David. That should give you great confidence. That should give you great assurance. It's one of the things that motivated the early disciples to rejoice when they were arrested, beaten, imprisoned, and even executed. In fact, I would go so far as to say that the death of a believer, whether it's from old age or illness or accident or execution, is evidence that they have completed the work that the Lord set for them in this life. As painful as it is for those of us left behind, 
they are about to meet their Lord in one almighty celebration of joy. Well done, good and faithful servant. That'll be the first thing they hear when they go through those pearly gates. Friends, we too have good reason to rejoice when we face that sort of opposition, for we are safe and secure in his hands and nothing can happen to us until we have fulfilled his purpose through us in our generation. Yet another lesson. When Christ gets in the boat with you, the storm ends. It may still rage all around you, but the storm loses all its power to frighten you, to control you. There was another storm on this lake on another occasion. Matthew chapter 8 tells us about it. This time Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat as the storm rages all around them. Again, his disciples are frightened. They wake him up crying out, save us, Lord, we are perishing. But they were never in danger. Not really, not when Jesus was present with them. He arose, rebuked the waves and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? What sort of man is he? The sort of man that is sovereign over all creation. The sort of man that is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 7.25 It is I, don't be afraid, Jesus tells the disciples in the boat. Those simple words should be enough to calm any of our fears. Friends, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind, Paul wrote to Timothy. If you're in Christ today, you have nothing to fear from storms, from life, from death. If you know the love of Christ, you need not fear. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. First John wrote that. John wrote that in his first letter. There is no doubt that the storms we face in life are forms of torment. But the love of Christ, the assurance we have as believers, the security of knowing our place in him should drive that fear out of us. If you don't recognise the power he has over the wind and the waves, the power he has over creation, the power he has over the enemy and all opposition, you may well feel fear. If you don't recognise his ability to protect you, to keep you, to bring you home to him at the right time, you may well experience torment. But that doesn't need to be the case. This passage of scripture, and indeed all of scripture, reveals his sovereign power over all opposition. And it reveals his love and his care for his people. If you don't yet know his love and care, I'd urge you to call out to him today. He won't walk past your boat if you call out to him. He promises, 
I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it seems we're surrounded by so many storms these days. COVID storms that separate families and friends from each other, that cause fear and uncertainty, doubt and confusion, and even inspire fury that would rival the storm on the Sea of Galilee. At its worst, these COVID storms tear our loved ones from us by death, leaving us to grieve the loss and to mourn our inability to be present to comfort them in their dying days. And we're living in storms of insecurity, insecurity about employment and housing and health and finance and business. We're in the midst of election storms here in Australia, but especially in America. Storms that pit friend against friend and brother against brother as they argue and divide over who is the best candidate. Lord, we can be overwhelmed by these storms, losing our hope, testing our faith, wondering if we can survive. But you, O Lord, are not troubled by storms. No matter how violently they rage, you are not troubled. The wind and the waves obey you, Lord. The nations rage in vain against you, for all of creation bows before you, Lord. You are sovereign over it all. So we put ourselves, Lord, our lives, our thoughts, our hopes, our fears, in your hands today. We will choose to trust you in every storm, in every circumstance, and trust you alone today, Jesus. In your mighty name, in your precious name, in your comforting name and your protective name. We pray these things. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.